This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. It is beyond all reasonable doubt that the best player in all of college basketball this season is Caitlin Clark of the University of Iowa. Recently, the Hawkeye guard whose name whose game is reminiscent of Steph Curry recently passed Kelsey Plum, previously of the University of Washington and now part of the defending WNBA champion Las Vegas Aces, to become the all-time leading scorer in the history of women's college basketball. Yet, she's not done at breaking records. She is now, as of this recording, 18 points away from breaking a record that some considered almost unbreakable. A record that was set over a half century ago. Hello, I'm Dana Augusta, your host of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. The sports history podcast you didn't know you needed. In this all new episode of the podcast, we will highlight the man whose record Clark is about to break. In 1970, Pete Maravich was basketball's most incredible and most influential showman. And for a short time, he made the perennial football school LSU into a basketball must-see attraction. We'll take a look back at this startling, at his startling college career, which in only three seasons in Banneroo set records that took 50 years to match at a time with no shot clock and no three-pointers. Later in the show, we'll take a quick look at what may may potentially be one of the most exciting, most unpredictable, and most wide-open NCAA men's basketball tournaments we've had. Since the season began, a total of five different teams have claimed the top spot in the NCAA polls, and no team has held that position for more than a couple of weeks. We'll take a look back at the tournament that had the most upsets and the most unbelievable finish to a national championship game ever. Then to wrap up the show, we'll send a shout out to the NBA Dunk Contest. It was 40 years ago that the NBA brought the the Dunk Contest to All-Star Weekend. The contest featured some of the most iconic dunkers in NBA history, but the one who took home the trophy was a young player that became the most underrated all-around players in NBA history and the backbone of one of the most snake-bit teams in NBA history. We'll send a shout-out to a player that was known by such nicknames as the Flying Sun and the Hayatola of Slamola. His story and so much more in this all-new edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a member of the Sports History Network. We here at the Sports History Network proudly partner with 26 podcasts, all revolving around the history of sports. But did you know that many of our hosts were sports history authors way before they started their shows? It's true. We've got Joe Ziemba, host of When Football Was Football, Joe Zagurski, host of Pro Football in the 1970s. Mark Morthier, host of Yesterday's Sports. 
Tommy Phillips, host of Lombardi Memories, and Scott Adamson, co-host of From the 55-Yard Line. All these authors have many books for you to choose from. To check them out, go to our website at sportshistorynetwork.com slash sportshistorybooks. Pick up your copy today! For all intents and purposes, the game of football is king here in the South. And in my native state of Louisiana, there's no exception. As far as college football in the Pelican State, LSU is the school of choice for most fans. Of course, there are other schools. Tulane, Southern University, my alma mater, McNeese, Louisiana Tech, Grambling, and Louisiana Lafayette, just to name a few. Football is what makes the world go round here in the South, and Louisiana is no different. But there was a time, albeit a very short time, the game of basketball fired the imaginations of fans all across the state from New Orleans to Natchitoches. In 1967, an incoming freshman arrived in Baton Rouge with with droopy brown eyes and floppy socks and dazzling ball handling skills. His father had recently became head coach of the Tigers and his son would join the team. His name? Pete Maravich. Now, Maravich would join the LSU team in 1966, which was the same year his father began coaching the varsity team. As per rules in 1966, freshman players were not eligible to play for the varsity, so he was relegated to play for the freshman team. In his first game with the freshman team, Maravich led the Tigers to a win over the Lions of Southeastern Louisiana with a triple-double. 50 points. 14 rebounds and 11 assists. Talk about an introduction. The Tigers would go on a 3-23 mark that season and would struggle on the court. Yet Maravich would make Tigers basketball the hottest ticket in Baton Rouge, albeit it was just the freshman team. One of the students at the time was James Carville, one of the most famous political analysts in the United States over the last 40 years. He would recall times that during Maravich's freshman season, fans would fill the John Parker Coliseum, known as the Cow Palace on campus, because it was also the Agricultural Center, and it was also the home for LSU varsity games, and freshman games for that matter. And when the varsity came out for their game after the freshman game, half the arena was empty. They all came to see Pete. You see... Pete was big-time box office, which was key in a state that is known for providing a good time. With his dead-eye shooting and incredible ball handling and passes that seemed impossible, Pete Maravich, for the next three seasons with the Tigers' varsity team, would give basketball fans the type of hoops showmanship that was reminiscent of a genius jazz musician who would play the same song every night but sounds so different with so much pizzazz and so incredible that it almost became a different song altogether. Even with the exploits of Pete Maravich, the Tigers never reached the NCAA tournament, but his overall play created such a special niche for himself in the history of college basketball, it was almost as if Pete Maravich's basketball career was a lot like the music career of, say, Jimi Hendrix. All told, Hendricks only had one top 40 hit in his career, but he is regarded as one of the true icons in the history of rock music over the last 60 years. Maravich's career was sort of the same. He never played in the NCAA tournament, and as a pro, 
He played in the postseason only four times, three with the Atlanta Hawks and once in his final season as a reserve for the Boston Celtics. Then you have the nickname, Pistol Pete. The name originated from his days in high school when Maravich was a slight ninth grader. His shooting motion was similar to that of a gunslinger in a duel removing a gun from his holster. But later, it was his uncanny and remarkable shooting talents and his ridiculous range that led to his nickname's credibility. During his time at LSU, Maravich finished with 3,667 points in just 83 games as a member of the varsity. Now remember, freshmen didn't become eligible to play varsity until January of 1972, two years after he would leave Baton Rouge for the NBA. During that time, he averaged 44.2 points per game, the highest scoring average in NCAA history, and held the record for the most points in a single game in NCAA history for over 20 years. On February 7, 1970, LSU fell short to SEC rival Alabama in Tuscaloosa 106-104. In a losing effort, Maravich scored 69 points, breaking the record that was held by Niagara's Calvin Murphy, which was set two years earlier. The record would stand until 1991, as U.S. International's Kevin Bradley would score 71 points in an 186-140 loss to Loyola Marymount. I'll say that score again. 186-140. Shortly after Pete Maravich left for the NBA, his father, Press Maravich, would be replaced by Dale Brown, which now is the all-time leader in coaching wins for LSU. He would go on to lead the Tigers to three Final Four appearances and become a icon, coaching icon here in the Bayou State. To put Maravich's career records into proper perspective, consider this. He averaged 40 points a game during a time in college basketball where there was no shot clock, no three-point line, and freshman players were not eligible. Earlier in his tenure as Tigers coach, Dale Brown, he who actually replaced Maravich as coach of LSU, went back in all of the old scorebooks from Maravich's career and tracked down how many points he would have had if, three point, if the three-point line was in play. With the running score and the official scorebook for each game during the three seasons at LSU, all shots that Pete Maravich made beyond the 19-foot, 9-inch three-point line in college were cataloged and recorded as three-pointers. Had Maravich had the three-point line during his tenure in the late 60s and early 70s, instead of averaging 44 points per game, Maravich would have averaged 57 points a game. 57 points a game, making an average of 12 three-pointers per game. No one has seen anything like Maravich before or since. Now, of course, you had players like Chris Jackson, who was later Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, you also have Steve Nash and currently Steph Curry. And also on the women's side, you have players like Kelsey Plum, Sabrina Unescu, and now Caitlin Clark, who are channeling their inner Pistol Pete. Clark, who is on the verge of passing Pete for the all-time scoring leader in NCAA history, both men's and women's, but before she does pass him, we need to pay homage to the man who is college basketball's folk hero. And speaking of Pistol Pete, recently the Orlando Magic, in connection with their 
35th anniversary of becoming an NBA franchise, retired Shaquille O'Neal's number 32. Upon getting his number retired, he stated that he was honored by it, but he felt that the first number retired by the Orlando Magic should have been their first ever draft choice, Nick Anderson, who is that franchise's all-time leader in games played and second in points, minutes played, and field goals. O'Neal became just the third person in NBA history to have his number retired by three different teams. Along with the Magic, Shaq has his number 34 retired by the Los Angeles Lakers where he won three NBA titles. He also has his number 32 retired by the Miami Heat, which he teamed up with Dwayne Wade and won their first title in 2006. He joins Will Chamberlain, who's 13, is retired by the Warriors, the Sixers, and the Lakers. The third player to have his number retired by three different teams, of course, Pete Maravich. His number 44 is retired by the Atlanta Hawks, who play who he played four seasons with and led them to three playoff appearances in the early 1970s. Then he had his number seven retired by the Jazz. Then, later before their first NBA game at the New Orleans Pelicans, his number seven was retired by the team posthumously, having never played for the Pelicans. In Louisiana, you see, Pete Maravich is a basketball icon. So much so, LSU's current arena is named after him, the Pete Maravich Assembly Center, PMAC for short. His number 23 hangs in the rafters there, and even though he never played for the Pelicans, his famous number 7 hangs above the court in the Smoothie King Center in New Orleans. Now that's respect. Now to close out this segment of the program, we're going to take a quick look at the current college basketball season as we head into the NCAA tournament, which will be coming in a few weeks. To say that the upcoming NCAA tournament will be wide open is a vast understatement to say the least. As we record this podcast episode, teams in the top 10 have a combined 48 losses on the season. And since the season began, four teams, Kansas, Purdue, Arizona, and Houston, have all had their turns at being the number one team in the AP poll. And as we head into March Madness, I have a feeling that this March will be the craziest ever. The year that the madness was real was in 2016, and I have a feeling that we're heading into that sort of tournament. The 2016 NCAA tournament is, is remembered primarily for two things. One, the last second three-pointer by Villanova's Chris Jenkins to beat North Carolina in the national championship to have their second national championship in school history, which is one of the greatest finishes in the history of the tournament. Second, the number of upsets in the first two rounds of the tournament. Now. An upset is defined in the tournament as when a team is seeded five or more spots lower than his opponent and wins. That year, at least one team seeded 9 through 15 had won a first round game. In total, 10 upsets, 8 in the first round, and 2 in the second. In the South Regional that year, number 13 Hawaii defeated number 4 California 77-66. Also in that region, number 11 Wichita State defeated Arizona 65-55. Over in the West Region, number 12 Yale, yes Yale, beat Baylor 
79 to 75, while number 11 Northern Iowa edged Texas 75 to 72. Now turning our attention to the East region that year, 14 seeded Stephen F. Austin defeated number three West Virginia 70 to 55. And finally in the Midwest, where it was the craziest, number 12 Arkansas Little Rock defeated fifth seeded Purdue 85 to 83. Meanwhile, this one was viewed as an upset in seedings only and not so much as name recognition. Number 11, Gonzaga, for some reason they were ranked number 11 that year, beat number 6, Seton Hall, 68-52. But in the biggest upset in the first round of that season, Middle Tennessee State, seeded 15th in the Midwest, shocked number 2 seed Michigan State, 90-81. So maybe we may have a tournament this year that is as wide open as this one. And if this year's regular season is, is any indication, this March will truly be maddening. Coming up after the break, we will go back 40 years to 1984 to send a shout out to the first ever NBA dunk contest. The contest featured some of the most iconic dunkers in NBA history, but the winner of this inaugural contest is remembered for being one of the most underrated players in NBA history and was the backbone of one of the most snake-bit teams in NBA history. That is coming up right after, right here, on the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a member of the Sports History Network. At the Sports History Network, we're all about the sports yesteryear, and so we're pleased to introduce you to Row One an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings sports history to life. The Row 1 Gallery features over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, and advertisements in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. Any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. It's your choice. In the Row 1 shop, you can pick from thousands of unique items that feature retro and historical backgrounds dating back to 1876. We have everything from clothing to phone cases to mugs, even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row one for access to the full Row 1 catalog. When you buy from the gallery today, you can instantly save 15% on your purchase. All you have to do is enter the code SHN15 and your discount will be applied. That's SHN15. That's it. Simple. Save 15% off all your prints in the Row 1 Gallery. Just go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row1. And don't forget to check out all the podcasts on the Sports History Network. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. You're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a member of the Sports History Network. And to conclude this episode and in conclusion of every episode we do here at Historically Speaking Sports, what we do at this point is to send a shout out to an individual or team or event in the world of sports history that may have been overlooked or forgotten about, but is still 
very relevant even to this day and sports his and sports history fans need to be reminded of. Now there was a time that the All-Star Weekend in the NBA was the most anticipated event on the NBA calendar next to the NBA postseason and the finals. In this last All-Star Weekend which took place a couple of weeks ago as of this recording it was for lack of a better term all right, I guess, with the emphasis on I guess. There was the skills competition, which was weird, the three-point contest, which was okay, but the best part was the one-on-one three-point shootout between Steph Curry of the Warriors and WNBA star Sabrina Unescu. Now that was pretty cool, but for a time, especially say prior to 2005, the best part of All-Star Weekend was the dunk contest. I can remember growing up along with all of my friends looking forward to the dunk contest and debating on who would win prior to the contest and arguing who got robbed after it. It was the golden age of the dunk contest. There was Vince Carter in the early 2000s. You had Cedric Sabalos in his blindfold dunk in the early 90s. There was the duel in 88 between Michael Jordan and Dominique Wilkins at Chicago Stadium. Still, one of the best dunk contests ever. And oh, by the way, I really believe Dominique was robbed. And who could forget Spud Webb in 1986 in Dallas, claiming the title from t- teammate Dominique Wilkins and standing only 5 foot 7 inches tall. If by chance you have not seen it, stop right now and watch it on YouTube. It is something to behold. But this, of course, does have an origin story. The NBA brought the dunk contest to All-Star Weekend in 1984, when that year's All-Star Game was held in Denver's McNichols Arena. Incidentally, that was also the site of the first ever dunk contest in the ABA, which was won by Julius Irvin. Now, some eight years later, he was the favorite to win the first ever NBA dunk contest. But unlike this year's dunk contest, whose winner, Matt McClung, who doesn't even play in the NBA, back in 84, the participants were the biggest stars of the league and all-time dunk icons. Along with Dr. J, there was the human highlight film, the aforementioned Dominique Wilkins, and also from the Portland Trailblazers, another future dunk icon, Clyde the Glide Draxler. Others in the competition was Michael Cooper of the Lakers, Dr. Duncan Stein himself, Daryl Griffith of the Utah Jazz, yet Ralph Sampson of the Houston Rockets, which has somewhat of a disadvantage, standing seven foot four inches tall. There was Orlando Woolridge of the Chicago Bulls, yet Edgar Jones of the Indiana Pacers, but rounding out the competition was a little known forward from the Phoenix Suns, known as known by such nicknames as Little Hawk, Mr. Slambassador, the Flying Sun and my personal favorite, the Hayatola of Slamola, Larry Nance. After the first two rounds, Nance and Irving were heading into the finals. Dr. J, looking to bring back the dunk that won it for him eight years earlier, took off from the free throw line and completed the dunk, but it wasn't enough. Nance pulled off an underhanded cradle dunk to claim the first ever NBA dunk contest beating his idol in the inaugural NBA dunk contest. Nance, who at the time played for the Phoenix Suns, were going to have a stellar career in the NBA, most notably with the Cleveland Cavaliers in the late 1980s. 
Led by head coach Lenny Wilkins, the Cavs featured Nance along with Brad Darty, John Hot Rod Williams, Craig Elo, Mark Price, and Gerald Wilkins were, and they were a power in the Eastern Conference and went toe-to-toe with the likes of the Pistons, the Celtics, and their most frequent foil, the Chicago Bulls. Unfortunately for Nance and the Cavs, they're best remembered for the shot that eliminated them from the 1989 NBA playoffs as Michael Jordan drained a jump shot over Elo from the top of the key to eliminate them from the playoffs. One of the most famous shots in NBA playoff history. But a shout out goes to Larry Nance, a career 17.8 rebound a game player who I consider one of the most underrated players in NBA history and also with some of the coolest nicknames ever. And that will do it for this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. Thank you guys for listening. And we're coming to you from the Bill King Memorial Studio in the sports wing of TM4 Enterprises, located in suburban Atlanta in the shadow of Stone Mountain. To get more content of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, you can check us out at Twitter X at HistoricallySP2, or you can send us a line at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And if you have not done so already, please, please, to help a brother out, please subscribe to the show. Tell your family, tell your friends, tell your neighbors. Hell, take a, tell a passerby on the street about us if you think they like sports history. Once again, thank you guys for joining me. And also thanks to all of you out there. And until next time, stay blessed, stay cool, and be your best in everything that you do. Peace.